Welcome to Media Tribe, the podcast that's on a mission to restore faith in journalism. I'm Shona Kinnair, an award-winning journalist with over 10 years of experience working for some of the biggest news outlets in the industry. Every week, I'm going to introduce you to some of the world's most respected journalists, filmmakers and media executives, and you're going to hear the story behind the storyteller. You'll get a sense of the integrity and hard graft that's involved in journalism, and hopefully you'll go away feeling that this craft is worth valuing. We were sleeping in this local man's house. He'd offered us a bed to sleep for the night. And I woke up to the sound of gunfire. And my reporter went outside and looked and then come, came running back in. He said, Mufakaka, Mufakaka, which is car bomb, car bomb. And this gargantuan truck started coming down the street towards us. And then I ran to the back of the house. And before I got there, it detonated. My guest today is Josh Baker, award-winning journalist and director who works for the BBC and PBS and hosts the podcast, I'm Not a Monster, that's now on BBC Sounds and PBS Frontline. Josh Baker, welcome to the Media Tribe. Hello, this is great. And I had no idea what a squad cast is. It's great, which makes there you go. kind of makes me sound like a really old man, doesn't it? Listen, Josh, how to introduce you. I would have said maybe three weeks ago, I would introduce you as a, as a war director, a veteran war director who has worked for the BBC mostly uh, and PBS Frontline. But you're now, you've now added podcast guru to your... Podcast guru. I'll take that. You can send me an invoice for that compliment, honestly. Excellent. Well, listen, before we kind of jump into your your big podcast series that's out at the moment and your film with both BBC Panorama and PBS Frontline here in the US, can you tell our audience how you started off in journalism? I always wanted to be a foreign correspondent and had like no experience or connections really to the world of journalism. So I cornered a man called James Harding at the Cheltenham Literature Festival. So James Harding used to be the editor of the Times newspaper, Times of London. And uh, for the Literature Festival, they were doing a live morning conference. So in papers, some people will know every morning they get together, they discuss the stories of the day, and then they have a second meeting in the afternoon. So they were going to do one of these live at the festival. So I was like, well, I'll just corner him and ask for a job. And I, I was quite young. I was like, I think it was 22. So I did. He came off stage. There was no way he could run. He was backed into a corner. And I was like, look, mate, I want to be a foreign correspondent. I love, you know, that thing. And he said, okay. I'll introduce you to a guy called Rick Beeston. So I get put into an email thread of this bloke, Rick Beeston, no idea who he is. He's the then foreign editor of the Times, absolute legend of journalism and known for um, taking risks on young people. Uh, he had historically, just to roll it a little bit back, he'd worked in Beirut. He covered a lot of the Middle East. When Saddam Hussein gassed the Kurds, Rick was one of the first journalists in there to get that story. So he'd gone and done it and now was at the Times as foreign editor and, and had just built this reputation of being slightly mad but would just champion youth. And actually what I didn't know at the time is he was actually terminally ill, so he was dying of cancer. Right. So Rick brought me into the Times. He's like, what do you want? I was like, can I, have some, can I have some time on the desk? And he was like, yes. So next day I was lumped on the Times foreign desk, had no idea what I was doing. 
Wow. So Josh, had you studied journalism at this? No, no. What? Okay, this does not happen to normal people. So whatever you spiked his drink with at the races. Yeah, well done. So just 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 talked to him and then had a week of being useless and just having to figure it out. And then they brought me back several months later. And then I worked at the Times while planning to do a film. And then I was went from being like a researcher to one of their foreign night editors and would night edit the foreign section. I covered a lot of stories with them, a lot of domestic stuff, the Bethel Green Girls and things like that. And then ran off to the Middle East to make a documentary about the Middle East peace process and then was like, I hate journalism. And then ran into the world of NGO work for a while and then came back out of that and went to work for the BBC and worked in varying departments of the BBC and sort of just worked my way from news into documentary and now I make as you say a lot of work in conflict but also to maintain my sanity I do domestic stuff and other things so I've got to work with like Louis Theroux or Stacey Doobies which are very different to um, a lot of stuff and then most recently um, a podcast series which is possibly the thing I have I am most proud of that's amazing. It, that, that honestly, that career trajectory is quite different. And I really don't think that happens to normal people. So, so well done you. I want to tell you a, a bit of a funny story. It was about this time last year. I was in Dublin in the motherland having a cup of tea with uh, a very, very lovely uh, BBC executive uh, who I believe commissioned your podcast, Dylan Haskins, great guy, real talent in the podcast field. And he, he started describing a series that he was kind of looking into. He didn't give away too much detail, uh, to be fair to him, but he described this person and he basically uh, described somebody who sounded like my mate Paddy Wells at Channel 4, except for he worked for the BBC. And I said, oh, is that your man, Josh Baker? So I actually knew this podcast was around the corner. And it's amazing. I mean, it's it's taken you four years to get this story off the ground. And for anybody listening in, it's a podcast series called I'm Not a Monster. So you should all go and download it and subscribe and leave a rating and review. And also it's an hour long BBC panorama film, which has already aired, Josh and then PBS Frontline. But before we go there, like, talk to me about, you know, working with the likes of Louis through and, and Stacey Dooley, because that, that feels very, very different to being a war, a war reporter and director. No, totally. But I also think um, I sort of made a decision that once I got to do a bit of, like, conflict work and what have you, that in order to sustain it mentally and emotionally, I also needed to do other things. And I never wanted to get sort of typecast as that's all I could do. So I thought it would be really important to go off and learn the craft in other areas. And back in 2017, Stacey wanted to go to Iraq. They had quite a good film idea. So I sort of jumped on board to that. And Stacey and I are like, on paper, very different people. Um, and I just basically fell in love with Stacey. She is fantastic and possibly one of the most ethical and most emotionally intelligent people I have ever encountered. And I tell you what, in a conflict environment, give me Stacey Dooley over like an ex-SAS bloke any day of the week, because she just has a way to just calm really aggressive men down just with a, a conversation or just like a touch on the arm. And they don't really know how to deal with it. It's like fantastic to watch. Um, so I got to work with Stacey a lot, which was which was lovely. And for those people who don't know, she's very prominent sort of popular British presenter in the UK and and then as you say recently I got to work with Louis which was first time in my life I think I've ever had stage fright like proper stage fright <laughs> just like 
I I used to watch you on TV when I was like a kid. Now I'm meant to direct you. What on earth happens here? And it was the most amazing experience to work with Louis. It was a very difficult film. Who knew making films about sex workers could be harder than making films about ISIS? But it it was. I'm sure. And I, I think, I mean, I know our audience will definitely know Louis through. And I reckon they will know Stacey Dooley. And I couldn't agree with you more, Josh, in the sense that she's such a warm presenter on camera. And I've heard from several people, she's a fantastic journalist. I certainly love her work. But I am curious, how was it bossing Louis through about the place? That must must have felt great. I don't know if you get to boss Louis. I think you... So Louis, Louis's got it worked out in terms of, of how to make films because he... When you have Louis, you have this immense focus and immense, like, he's a genius, this brilliance of, of him, and then he disappears. So, like, you, when you have him in these moments, he's absolutely fantastic, and it's a learning experience to be around him. But, you know, it's quite funny because, say, you'll be going into do a scene, so you're going to meet a mom, and she's got two kids, she works as a sex worker, she fits it around being a single parent, what have you. You know, you and Louis will chat before about what you're going to get out of the scene, what you think it's about, what the questions you need to ask and all this, you do all this. And then Louis will walk in and all that goes out the window and it's just like the wild ride of following Louis. And you might film continuously for two, three hours. So it's exhausting and you're trying to remember everything that's going on. And then he'll eventually come back to all the questions that you wanted to ask. But I I, I mean, the first time I filmed with him, I had one of the weirdest moments ever where I was sat on a couch, I had Louis Theroux to my left, and to my right I had a sex worker who was showing me a a pornographic video involving a teddy while Louis was sort of watching it. Lovely. And I was just like, this is the weirdest experience. I don't really know what to do. I don't know how we're going to use this. I don't know how to get out of this this situation. I don't really want to be here. And then Louis just turns to the camera and goes, sounds like you in this video, Josh. And it just like descended into laughter. So that was my first experience with him and it was a really good icebreaker because I think he could tell I was quite nervous filming with the legend that is Louis. That's funny. So you were like, get me to Mosul quick. Uh, That sounds a bit easier. Now, we've all read various headlines and narratives about the US fight against ISIS. Most of them centre around a single perspective that the primary objective of the US military campaign in Syria and its surrounds was to defeat ISIS. Then came a memoir by Ash Carter, the US Secretary of Defence. Now, I haven't read the full memoir, but a Bloomberg Opinion article that I listened to this week on NOAA, the sponsor of today's podcast, sums it up very well indeed. This audio article highlights how the US allied itself, not with Syria, Russia or Turkey in its fight against ISIS, but with paramilitary formations who were equally opposed to ISIS and the Syrian government of Bashar al-Assad. As a result, the US strategy in Syria shifted. It now had two objectives, defeat ISIS and regime change in Syria. This is one of my favourite aspects of NOAA. Their editorial team is constantly on the lookout for articles that provide well-rounded perspectives on important topics. This is as well as the huge selection of spoken word audio articles from premium publishers like the Washington Post and The Economist. As a Media Tribe sponsor, Noah is offering the first 100 people who click the link in the show notes on thismediatribe.com a one-week free trial of Premium, plus 50% off if you choose to subscribe. If you haven't yet, download the Noah app and begin listening. 
Doing so will help you understand and know more about important topics and help support me in bringing you more Media Tribe episodes like this one. Right, back to Josh. Well, I want to move on then, Josh, to kind of the main part of the interview. And as usual, I just tee up this question so I hear the answer I want to hear. But can you tell me about a film or project that you're quite proud of? And I would love nothing more than you to talk about your current masterpiece. And as I said, it has taken you four years to get to this point. And and you can be guaranteed you, you did a lot of it on your own, on your own time, your own resources. So do you kind of want to start from the beginning, Josh? I'm actually only 17 years old, this old decrepit face. This, this is what comes from four years of trying to do this story. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, I think all projects have their unique challenges. This one has been just from start to finish, and it's still not finished, something else. Essentially, in 2016, I was making a film for Frontline called uh, Battle for Iraq, and we were looking at how sort of the retaking of this the Iraq second largest city Mosul from ISIS which ISIS had taken control of it in 2014 we were looking at how the battle to retake this was sort of going to define part of the future for Iraq so we were embedded with Iraqi special forces we snuck into the city because a commander wanted to show us what was really happening as, as he said and then within 24 hours everything went massively sideways I had woken up we were sleeping in this local man's house he'd offered us a bed to sleep for the night and I woke up to the sound of gunfire and we were in the middle of a massive war so like they've been gunfire all night so I didn't think too much of it and I looked over and the the captain who I was sharing a room with had basically just the gunfire didn't phase him at all like he was buried under a duvet was not interested um but then it grew louder and I sort of walked to the front of this house with my correspondent and my fixer, this could sound really pedantic, but the type of gunfire I knew that it was, it was our guys because they were using American weapons and it was all going one way and there was nothing coming back. So my head couldn't quite understand what was going on. And my reporter went outside and looked and then come, came running back in. He said, Mufakako, Mufakako, which is car bomb, car bomb. And this gargantuan truck was basically reversing back and forth and started coming down the street towards us and then I ran to the back of the house and before I got there it detonated and the house collapsed with us inside it somehow my correspondent is just incredibly lucky and seems to have got away with a few scratches I was partially buried and I, I fractured my spine and I had shrapnel all through the back of my head Eventually, I dug myself out of that, and I was very lucky that, you know, sort of unlike the civilians and the, the people who lived on that street, I was able to get out. And then when I was back in London, I had this phone call, and it was from somebody I've known for many years of covering stories on, on ISIS. And he wanted to know how I was. We'd lost touch. He'd heard I'd been injured. And I said, well, let's, let's meet up. So I meet him in central London for tea and scones. I'm literally not making that up. Who goes for tea and scones? And just in passing, he mentions this family, this American family, who are trapped in Raqqa, which was then the self-declared capital of ISIS in Syria, and they're looking for a way out. And then he almost goes to move the conversation on, and I'm like, so what? Well, just <laughs> that thing you just said, just roll it back for me. And he said, yeah, I've got these, these videos. And the, he took out his phone and showed me a video, and it was a young American boy called Matthew 
and it wasn't sort of like a propaganda video like we'd all come to see from from isis this was this kind of almost like in the style of a home video and it showed a young american kid sat on a living room floor with the components of a suicide bomb at his at his feet and he basically is forced to assemble it or instructed to assemble it by his his stepfather and um, i didn't know it was his stepfather at the time and then i was like what is going on here so I found myself in this very weird position of having just lived through a suicide bombing and seen firsthand that reality and, and still sort of trying to come to terms with it and then confronted with just on face value what seemed like the start of another one, except this time it was a young boy at its epicentre. So idealistically, it sort of just gave me this huge drive of like, I have to, I have to understand this. Um, and that set in train a story that would, as you say, take four years uh, of sort of unpicking how an American family left Indiana and ended up at the heart of ISIS and then came back again. And I mean, as a piece of journalism, we have literally spoken to everyone you could possibly imagine from people within dark, spooky places through to people that Sam met once when she was kid. I mean, it's an extraordinary story. So, so not to give away too many details, because I really do encourage people to go and subscribe to the podcast, and watch Panorama on the iPlayer or over here on Frontline. But so, so just, the headline is an American mum, as you said, uh, married to a Moroccan chap called Musa. The mum was called Samantha, took their son now called or was called Yusuf while he lived in the in the caliphate they took themselves to Syria to to live with ISIS and kind of kind of kind of okay interject it is it is this, it's basically how did an american mom and her family end up at the heart of the ISIS caliphate she says she was tricked was she and what happened while they were there is is the broad overview because even to this day like, if you look at what she went down for, and uh, without spoiling too much, because that's how the podcast starts, it, it's not what you would expect given her story. So there are complexities to it and nuances that are really fun to explore in audio. I mean, the whole thing is totally mad. It's totally mad, but it's also really, really disturbing. And, and obviously, the really, really disturbing part is seeing little Matthew slash Yusuf in those kind of propaganda videos. And, and you know, the fact that a child was used as a tool by ISIS. And it looks like by his dad, anyway, potentially by his mum. So it is a very, very disturbing tale. And I think the journalism is really fantastic. I feel like you obviously know this lady, Sam. You know her quite well. What do you think happened? Do you believe her? Do you think she knew she was going to Syria? I won't say completely because I want people to listen to the podcast. But there is a reason that she took a plea deal which speaks to a lot about her life before she left America and the decision she might have made. But I will also say, having met in Raqqa, so essentially this family ended up living in Raqqa for more than two and a half years. While there, her husband um, became an ISIS sniper, possibly even a commander. Her son, as you say, ended up featuring in a propaganda video which went around the world where he threatened President Trump. The family owned slaves. They survived basically one of the worst bombing campaigns since World War II. It, it's mental what they went through, and it's very dark and very depressing. But having spent a bit of time in Raqqa now, the slaves that the family owned 
all really like Sam and thank her for keeping them alive. The neighbours that lived on the same street as Sam have some very positive things to say about her. So you have these kind of opposites where you would expect her life in America to be where everything was good and rosy and her life in Syria to be where she was potentially quite bad. And actually, it's much more nuanced than that. Yeah, and I, I think that's that. That is the thing. Stories are always so nuanced. They're never, ever, ever black and white. And you know that makes your job very difficult to kind of ascertain whether a person is lying to you or not. I feel like by the time we publish this episode, some of your other episodes within the podcast will will have been released. So it's probably okay to say that, as you mentioned, the the Yazidi girls seem to have liked Sam, and it sounds like she was trying to protect them when they were bought as slaves by her husband and essentially raped. I believe one of them was 14, which is, you know, really disturbing. But also on the flip side, uh, the kind of juxtaposition to that, Josh, is that her dad says that he wouldn't be surprised if she knew she was going to Syria. Matthew's biological father said pretty much the same thing. And they kind of accuse her of being more of a thrill seeker, maybe as, a, as opposed to being an extremist. What are your thoughts on that? Totally. I mean, I think also it's important to recognise, and I don't want to do anything to, to take away from the survivors of, of the abuse, the slaves, um, uh, and their story and their opinion. But I do think it is important to consider their position within one that they weren't with Sam by choice. You know, they did not choose to be there with her. And that's a very important distinction when viewing their, their position. But that's also not to take away from their feelings towards Sam. I think what you're talking about in terms of Sam and, you know, dad, you can't trust the kind of thing. But then her best mates being like, she's the greatest friend I've ever had. She's so kind. She's so generous. You have somebody that does not fit the stereotypical mould of someone who ends up with ISIS. And it's quite hard to, to process that and understand it. I think Sam does have thrill-seeking tendencies. I think when you go back through her life in more detail, she has sought out or found herself in, herself in perhaps is a better way to phrase it, in extreme environments and in extreme situations. And I think she's also had a lot of complex relationships where she's suffered abuse. And this, I think, is a bit of a continuation of that path. However, some of the decisions that she made, it is ultimately her children that are paying the, the ultimate price for that, really. Yeah, and I think that's actually what your film and the podcast so far really, really captures and captures really well. Kind of a more general question, Josh. How was it partaking in such a massive collaboration between two big beasts, one being the BBC and one being PBS, and then kind of transferring your skills as a as a television director into the, the field of podcasting, which is a very different craft, even in terms of how it's scripted and, you know, the, the storytelling. I, I think BBC Sounds, you guys and Fruitline um, have done a smashing job at that. It's a very, very well put together piece so far. It's very, very intimate and it's it's so powerful, potentially even more powerful than television, I would say. I mean, it's like, honestly, I love sound. So like the chance to tell a story in sound is is like so exciting to me. But also it's like a super, like, you have this realisation moment where you first move into it where it's like, God, if I'd just been recording sound on some of the stories I've done previously, the stuff I would have got people to say. There's something about the camera that that means that people are slightly more reserved. But when it's just a microphone, I mean, it's so no holds bar kind of thing. 
the, the complexity of this is that essentially it started as a film. I have for years wanted to get it made into a podcast, kept pushing, and eventually we got it made into a podcast. So consequently, I made a real effort to record really the best audio I could when doing films. So the audio transferred across well, which doesn't normally happen, um, apparently. So that was that was kind of our lucky step number one. But also within the podcast world, we can just really get into all the little cul-de-sacs, all the little bits that didn't necessarily go anywhere. So for instance, in episode two, Laurie spends weeks talking to a people smuggler who she thinks that she's gonna, you know, is gonna save her family from ISIS, and that starts to unravel. In film world, we can't really go into it because it doesn't really go anywhere. You know, you've got 50 minutes, maybe 60 minutes in a film. You, you've got to pick what things you tell. Whereas in the podcast, you get this like richness of storytelling and you can go into all the intricacies of what happened here, what happened there, why we ended up here. And you can really take the time with it. So I think in some ways it's a much more intimate and truer representation of what really happened. The thing about telling a story across multiple ways is multiple platforms is more and more people get involved and then more and more people have a stake. Often more and more people are, um, you know, much more powerful, much more experienced than you are. So it's interesting because like you have these two journalistic beasts, you know, absolute masters of their craft in, in the BBC with Panorama and, and, and Frontline who have their sort of, their methodology of doing things which you know in their own right are both brilliant and then you have the added dynamic of sounds bbc sounds and the podcast team which is a completely different world of storytelling so you almost end up with these very difficult things to navigate where you've got different ways of working uh different types of things that people are used to producing and I suppose cultural differences to some degree if you think about the cultural differences between say filmmaking and podcasting they're very different what's been amazing on this is everybody involved with it has had to learn or find ways to collaborate or work together in what has been like a gargantuan collaboration between the bbc and, and frontline and it's sort of indicative in a in a broader sense of i think how the bbc wants to do more of its stories going forward so the new director general who's come into the bbc he has a mandate to sort of i think get more from stories across the you know more of the platforms that the BBC has to offer. And this is sort of the first one through the wall, so to speak, where you've got, you know, a film that's a one-hour special, then you've got the podcast series. Now we're doing a load of, like, online multimedia stuff, and there's lots of other spin-offs coming from it. And then you throw in your collaboration as well. Yeah, I think it's amazing. I think collaborating uh, is absolutely the way forward. I mean, I have to say, I did feel slightly sorry for you reading out all those credits at the end of the podcast. It must have been exhausting. It is. No, it is the way forward. I think what you end up being as well a lot of the time, though, is it requires a lot of management because you have to make sure you're addressing everyone's needs. And there can be a lot of needs and a lot of competing needs. No doubt. Well, listen, Josh, last question, and I know you will provide the goods. Um, is there a bonkers, crazy experience you've had working in this industry that we haven't heard about? I think, I don't know, I suppose the, the being blown up is probably the most bonkers. But the thing is about journalism is, particularly when it's all like just totally mad because it's kind of the job for people who want to do everything. Because it gives you a legitimate reason to go into anything you can imagine and sort of explore it. So whether you're sort of, you know, with Louis Theroux on a couch with sex workers watching pornography and not knowing how to feel or what you're meant to do or where you're meant to be, or 
whether I've, I was trapped in the ocean for five days with Stacey Dooley sleeping either end with a couch trying to make a film about whale hunting, like, or, you know, the sadder stuff in, in Mosul where I was very lucky to survive a suicide bombing. I, I am so grateful to this job for what it allows you to do and the adventures it allows you to have, but also like the connections with people. I suppose that the one that's really stayed with me is is what actually is episode four, which is Aham, who is this young boy who was basically he's a Yazidi, so from a religious minority in Iraq. And he was kidnapped by ISIS when he was four years old and had the worst time imaginable. So I remember finding out about this kid once he'd been returned to Iraq and he'd escaped ISIS. And it took us a few, a little while to find him. And we we're basically driving through the Iraqi countryside to these remote areas in the mountain region. And I went there expecting to find this really damaged and broken kid. And I was greeted by the most beautiful little munchkin with this football in his hand and this little camera. And he had this love and this obsession with cameras. We still does. But so when I got out of the car with my camera, he immediately, like, straight over to me, wants to play with the camera, wants to start filming. So it's like, all yours, mate, go for it. And I spend this whole day with him, and then he's like, I really want to show you my camera. So he takes out this nice little pink snap-and-shoot camera he's got. The only problem is it doesn't have a battery and it doesn't work. And he goes around pretending to take all these pictures, and my heart just, like, exploded. Because, like, here's this little munchkin who survived the most horrendous things. All he wants to do is take pictures and make films, and he's got all he's got to do is this little camera, but he's the most joyous kid ever. He's such a standout character, actually, in, in the film or the podcast. Just for context, for the audience, he is Matthew, the US boy's best friend um, when they get to Raqqa. To, to the caliphate and he is really just the most lovely little boy and um, you can see he's a true character i think that's a great story josh oh yeah i mean all of mine are otherwise clinically depressing they're not that funny <laughs> thanks very much to josh baker for joining me this week and you guys must definitely go and subscribe to his new podcast i'm not a monster if you did like what you heard on this episode of Media Tribe, that's very good news because I'll be dropping new shows every week and every month on my new Media Tribe Spotlight series. Also, if you haven't already, make sure to take a listen to previous shows with some legends in the industry. And as ever, please, please, please do leave me a rating and review as it really does help other people find this podcast. Finally, if you have any guest suggestions, drop me a note on Twitter. I'm at Shauna with the GH at the end or at Shauna Kinnair on Instagram. And again, that's with the GH. Right. That's it. See you soon. This episode was edited by Ryan Ferguson. 